Uh, just curious, how many have ever actually played Trivial Pursuit? See your hands, okay. And um, it's a game that was started by a couple of Canadian sports journalists, which sounds like an oxymoron. I don't quite understand with that. But uh, <laughs> they were just playing a game of Scrabble uh, and drinking some beer. Evidently, if you need a great idea for something that will sell 35 million games, this is the way to do it. Play Scrabble, drink beer. And out came this idea for this game, Trivial Pursuit. Um, just to give you their names, Chris Haney and Scott Abbott. I believe we have their pictures. There they are. Back in 1979, that's probably the exact moment that they discovered it, and then they imposed the Trivial Pursuit board below it. But uh, Trivial Pursuit is a game, unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you look at it, that, that all of us play. Uh, we might play it in different ways. We may not play it formally in that game, but we all play it. For example, I have a way that I play Trivial Pursuit regularly with my wife, and she so enjoys when I do this. Um, <laughs> Like when we're watching a movie or something like that, I have this thing I like to do that if I see someone that maybe they were very young, maybe they were even a child, but now they're older as an actor, actress, I like to point it out and let her know that's who that is. Would you have known that? And she's always so grateful that, uh, <laughs> that I do this. Uh, <laughs> So we all play it in some way. Some of us, you know, we've got a lot of information when it comes to, you know, maybe a sport or maybe gardening or cooking. Or, I mean, and we like to share that information. It's kind of exciting. But, but what, what does the word trivia mean? Maybe we need to kind of get a fix on that to start with. Uh, trivia. Noun, details, consider. I'm really echoing bad, Tim. Uh, details, considerations, or pieces of information of what? Little importance. Okay, so we kind of know what it is. If it's trivial just doesn't make that much difference. It's not a big deal, all things considered. Now, I, I, this is going to sound odd. Please don't think I'm some kind of weird freak. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. But, but how many of you are shoe people, man? You're, 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 you love shoes. You're into shoes. Can I see your, and it's not just a girl thing anymore. It's a guy thing, too. How many of you are shoe people? Let me see your hands. Uh, you're afraid. You're ashamed to admit it. You're ashamed. I see this. <laughs> uh, how many of you are... I'm a shoe person, Randy, but, but I'm, I'm El Cheapo shoe person. I'm like pay less. I'm like I'm always getting a bargain. I'm a cheapo. Can you can raise your hand to that. You'll feel good and godly. You're a cheapo shoe person. Can I see? But then there's some of you. You're like, Randy, when it comes to shoes, man, you've got to take care of your feet. Your feet are important. Your feet are like the staff of life. You're going to be on them all your life. And so I believe in paying for good footwear. Now, when people pay a lot of money for shoes, they don't call them shoes anymore. They call them footwear. There's something different about it. I won't ask you to raise your hands, how many of you like good footwear, but probably some of us do. Now, when you are finished with a pair of shoes, uh, just curious, what do you typically do with it? Just, just kind of shout it out. Throw them away? Donate them? Okay, that, that's the holy ones that donate them. We carnal beasts throw them away. We're just greedy and obnoxious. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, any of you save all of your shoes? You have every shoe that you ever have owned. You just save them. You preserve them. Any, anybody do that? Some do. <laughs> I, I, I'm just curious. How many of you have had to add additions to your house because you have so many, <laughs> so many shoes? Well, I came across an article I found was interesting where... The Smithsonian Institute uh, is saving a pair of shoes 
and they're preserving them. And in order to preserve them, it's going to cost $300,000. I mean, it's like a mortgage, right? You know, how many of you would take out a mortgage to preserve a pair of your shoes? <laughs> so here they are. Let me show you a picture. They're the famous, the famous red slippers. Now, what makes these things worth to someone $300,000 to preserve? They've been in the Smithsonian Institute for a long time. Uh, first of all, who was it that wore the slippers that made them famous? Judy Garland. Judy Garland. And she wore them in what movie? Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. You see, we, we all know. And, and so let, let, let's go down a little bit of a logic trail here. So because a lady named Judy Garland put these slippers on, and because she was in a movie that lots of people liked, now these slippers are worth keeping in the Smithsonian Institute, and they're worth paying $300,000 to preserve them because they're evidently starting to deteriorate. When you put your feet in your shoes, when I put my feet in my shoes, what are they worth? <laughs> do, do you think anybody would pay $300,000 to preserve my shoes. It's okay, you won't hurt my feelings, <laughs> right? And they won't, they won't pay that to, to preserve your shoes either. We're going somewhere with this. <laughs> so, so what society is telling you and I, I'm still echoing really bad, Tim, um, is that my shoes are trivial because I put my feet in them, which means society considers me trivial but Judy Garland's important. She's valuable. I'm trivial. Her shoes are valuable. My shoes, who cares? So let's go further. What is it that made Judy Garland so valuable that when she put her feet in a pair of shoes there in the Smithsonian Institute? Well, she was a really good singer, an amazing singer. And she was a good, a decent actress as well. So what society is telling us is that if you have musical talent or acting talent, we can add to that list athletic talent, right? Uh, intelligence at certain levels, attractiveness, that you are valuable, you're worth an awful lot, you're important. But if you're not very talented, or if you're not very intelligent, or if you're not very attractive, or if you're not skilled or talented, you know, you're not an athlete, you're not an actor, you're not a singer, you're not a dancer, you're not some brilliant person. Well, what society tells us, and the way, the way they tell us is because they pay us way less. For example, if you're a farmer, if you're a farmer, you don't make what an actor or an athlete or a singer this professional makes, right? We pay that farmer just a little bit. We pay these other people an awful lot. So what we're telling, it's a message, it's saying the farmer is trivial, he or she doesn't make much difference. But the actor, the singer, the talented athlete, they're valuable. But let me ask you, if the actor and the singer and the athletes go away, would you still be able to live? Can I see your hands? Are you still going to make it? It might be shocking. You go through DTs for a while. <laughs> Got to get your entertainment fixed somehow. But if the farmer goes away, what happens to us all? And yet, the farmer is treated as trivial. The actor, the athlete, the entertainer, the attractive, and so forth, they're treated as valuable. So, here's where we're going with this. You see, 
there, there's good evidence. We, we're just sitting here just, just rubbing the surface. And there's good evidence that, that our society, our world, has a hard time really figuring out what is actually trivial. It's really echoing bad. And what is truly valuable. Okay? Now, let's kind of take that into a realm that we haven't even started yet. Assuming that you believe that there is a creator and the creator created everything in the universe and created each of us with a purpose and has a very clear purpose for each of our lives, very clear purpose for the entire human race and the universe, it would make sense that that creator also looks and says some things are really valuable and some things are just trivial. So... Let's get a glimpse at this from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, I'm going to turn you to a portion of scripture. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writing to followers of Christ living in the city of Corinth. And he starts talking to them about wisdom, the wisdom of society or the world compared to God's wisdom. And it gets into this whole idea of what's trivial and what's really important or really valuable. So it'll be page 1285. Grab his Bibles near you. And we're, we want to read together. I'm going to start you in verse 18. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to begin verse 18. I'll give you a second because I hear pages flipping. See, it's all dependent on the people in the front row. If they don't get there fast, man, I just pause. I don't do anything because <laughs> they're the only ones I can hear flipping. <laughs> all right, here we go. For the message about the what? I just said that to make sure you're all with me. <laughs> For the message about the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. Where's the wise man? Where's the the expert in the Mosaic law? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world, what is the word? Foolish. Pause for a moment. Think about it. We we, we label some people geniuses. You know, we we marvel at certain people's... um, Mental abilities and so forth. We, we, we just marvel at their ability to, to understand certain parts of reality. But when you think about it, a genius is just someone that has an understanding or the ability to understand in great detail one, usually it's only one or two small parts of reality. But we consider them geniuses. But there's so much more to reality that they don't even know about. There's so much more to reality they can't even see. Scientists now know this. But we consider them a genius if they just know a little bit about reality. And we we kind of treat them with awe and reverence. But they're ignorant about a whole lot. You've got to let this settle in. We shouldn't be awed so easily by people that come across wise. And they can present themselves as rather uh, dogmatic and know-it-all-ish and smug and self-satisfied. Not all, but at times. All right, let me go back to that passage. I don't want to get too far out. I, I see what's happening. It's when I bend my head down. It echoes, so I don't know how to bend, you know, bend my head up when I'm reading my Bible. Should I hold, hold it like this? <laughs> um, here we go. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believe or trust or have confidence in, reliance on the same Greek word, by the foolishness of what? It's a foolish thing that I do. For Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach about a what? Crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah, was the subject of what 
the early followers of Christ, they centered their, their message on. It, it was what we call the gospel. The word gospel, doesn't it sound weird and funny? Kind of makes you think about, I don't know, old-fashioned things. But what the word actually means is good news. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the four, somebody say it, gospels. It's the four good newsies. And so when you read those, it's, it's the good news that this is what God is really like. It's the good news that God has been involved in the human race and he's been working out a plan since the beginning. And now this plan has come to a certain culminating point where he's intervened in physical form. And the good news is God was nothing like what the Jews at that time were portraying him to be. He was kind and loving and gentle and gracious. He loved people. He loved broken people. He loved misled people. He loved all kinds of people. He cared for them. And he came and he demonstrated power sufficient to bring the kind of changes to the human race that we all ache for but usually give up on. Things like healing of all disease. Things like control of the weather. Things like raising people from the dead. Jesus raised three people from the dead during his three and a half year ministry. He finally himself rose from the dead. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the good news about God. This is what he's really like about his kingdom. Anybody can enter it. The good news is that God wants to reveal himself, that his power is always controlled by his sacrificial love. That's what he meant when Paul said, the preaching of a crucified Messiah. The message of the cross. I've been listening to preachers for 50 years talk about, got to preach that message of the cross. Got to preach that message of the cross. Very few of them unpack what it really means. The message of the cross is this. The almighty, omnipotent, sovereign creator, the one who spoke the universe into existence, is tender and humble and gentle and loving and sacrificially devoted to those he created. The cross is the proof of that. The cross is the revelation of God's glory. It's not his power. It's his power controlled by his sacrificial love. He who should not have undergone death because he had no sin, he chose to show, this is how much I love you guys. I'll encounter, I'll experience everything you experience so that there will be no barrier between you and I. You can know that you can trust me, that all my power, all my will is only for your good. I love you with a passion. He said when he went to the cross, that's the message of the cross. And so Paul said that that appeals, though, to people that society, generally speaking, doesn't consider a part of the wise. Trivial people it appeals to. Let's, let's read on. Let me get back. You'll see where I'm going with this. Verse 22. For the Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom, but we preach about a crucified Christ or a crucified Messiah, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. They're impressed with power and oratory. Verse 24. But to those who are called, and God calls all people to himself, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. His power is released by God showing his sacrificial nature. Because that draws anybody that can be drawn back to him, back to a trusting relationship with him. Not, not awed, not scared, not terrified by his power, but drawn by this revelation that all of his power is governed by humble, gentle, sacrificial love. That's God's power and wisdom revealed. It goes on. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Then he gets personal. He says, Th think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards, 
Probably he insulted some of them by saying that. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to privileged positions. He's saying, look at yourselves, Corinthians, followers of Christ. He said, look at you. You're not the elite. You're not the ones that society considers the movers and the shakers. You're just pretty much ordinary people, the people that would be considered trivial. He says, but yet you're the ones that saw the power and the beauty of God in Christ, in his coming, in his kingdom, in his life, in his miracles, in his sacrificial death, in his resurrection. You saw. Why? Why did they see? And why did the, the movers and the shakers, for the most part, then and now, not see? There's a portion of scripture that I think has been misunderstood for a long, long time. It's called uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly something called the Beatitudes. How many are a little bit familiar, with, at least, with the Beatitudes? You know, the blessed are, blessed are they. And, and, and let me just show you real quick what they are. They go like this. Um, blessed are, and, and you can see it in Matthew on your own, verse 3 through 12. Blessed are, and first Jesus says, now mind you, Jesus is on a mountainside. There's thousands of people around him. They are all the misfits. They are not the people that would have been acceptable to the religious leaders of the day. They would have been the people that the religious leaders of the day considered completely disgusting and lost in their version of God and God's kingdom. But Jesus is there, and he looks at him. And they're broken. They, they don't have any facades. They know they're messed up. They know they're in need. They know they want something better, though. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Wow, it's not the proud, not the confident. Blessed are the mourners, people that are, that are not happy. They're sad about conditions. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. They don't have any agenda. They don't have a secret. They just are what they are. They're authentic. Blessed are the peacemakers. They care about relationships. They, they want to see relationships sustained. And then the last thing he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. He says, great will be their reward in heaven, a realm that Jesus was from and knew about and saw, but no human at that point really understood. So here he's got these, these beatitudes. And most people think things like, okay, this is what you have to do. You've got to be like this if you want God to bless you. Because there are beatitudes, and if you want the blessed, you've got to become poor in spirit. You've got to become a mourner. You've got to become meek. That's not what he was saying at all. Now, others say, well, well, this was kind of like Moses. Instead of the Ten Commandments, he's given his, you know, his manifesto for his kingdom. Not true at all. What Jesus was saying was reality. He's looking at this mob of misfit people, ordinary people, broken people like you and I. And he's saying, the religious leaders say the blessed ones are the high and the mighty and the prosperous and the financially, you know, above the top and the powerful and the movers and the shakers. But Jesus says, you guys are the blessed because you're not content with things. You're not smug. You're not self-satisfied. You want something more. You're humble. You're broken. You own the truth about yourself you are looking for something that only God can bring. The smug, the self-satisfied, the societally satisfied, they're not looking for anything. They're quite content with things the way they are. They're quite content with themselves. They're quite content with their lives. And Jesus is telling them, he's saying, because you're not content with yourself, because you're not content with this world as it is, you're, you're blessed. You're, you're in a position to see the beauty and the value of the kingdom that I'm offering, says Jesus. And you're in the position to come back to your creator in trust because you're humble, you're teachable, you see life's not working. It's not working for you. It's not working for anyone. The high and the mighty and the rich and the powerful have a harder time seeing that. Notice I said harder because even Jesus said, you know, that a, that a rich man can be saved, but it's kind of like a camel getting through the eye of a needle. I just was attacked by a fly. 
must be a thing of Satan. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, so please don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that the brilliant people, talented people, athletic people, professional people, very wealthy people cannot become true followers of Christ. It just means that it's harder for them because they tend to be, notice I said tend to be, more smug, more complacent, more self-satisfied, more societally satisfied. So the kingdom that Jesus reveals and offers, it, it doesn't have much value to them. It doesn't pull. So let's go back to the first Corinthians passage. We'll finish it out quick and then we'll zoom on from there. So he says in verse 27, but God chose what the world thinks is foolish or trivial to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks is weak or trivial to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised. He's talking about us, by the way. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing or trivial to set aside what is regarded as something. And so my whole point was to show that, that the Creator's vision of what is valuable and important and what matters and society's vision and it's always been this way historically of what is valuable and important and what matters is very very different now this is tough this is tough for us today because we are immersed okay in a society that tells us around the clock the trivial is very important and that's what you need to pursue that's what matters. It simultaneously tells us that many things are trivial and not worthy of pursuit, not worthy of respect, not worthy of desire. But God says, that's not true. It's just the opposite. It's flipped upside down. So this makes it hard for us. Now, now I don't want you to misunderstand where I'm going with this. I'm not saying that we should try to um, completely eliminate everything that is trivial from our life. No, no, no. I want, I want to say this out loud. In fact, the truth is we should enjoy what is trivial, but we must learn to manage what is trivial and pursue what is truly valuable. Does that make sense? Because here's the thing. The reason I said we've got to learn to pursue what is truly valuable, it, 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 has, it takes intentional. We have to be intentional about it because society is like a big, strong current. It sweeps us. It moves us. It drags us toward making what is trivial important and what is important trivial. Okay, let, let, let's, let's dig in. Let me show you what are, uh, some things that support this scripture. Look in the book of 1 Peter. You'll see this verse. It says it this way, for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Just keep that passage up there for a minute, but I want to say a little something. How many of you have lived long enough to have seen either some great actor, some great singer, some great politician, some leader of a country, some great athlete be in their prime when they were it, man, and then they aged and they faded and they lost, they lost that something, man. They lost their mojo. How many, how many have lived long enough to have seen that? That's what that's talking about. People shake the world of their day for a few short years, but then just like grass, we wither, we fail, we go away. It goes on to say this, charm is deceptive and beauty is what? Man, all you got to do is look at some pictures of old actors and actresses. You know, you know, it's not going to last. <laughs> Not going to last. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. People, despite their what? 
Do not what? You can't make enough money to keep yourself alive forever. That's all it's saying. You're going to get the same run, the same 120 years or whatever it is, probably a lot less, maybe a little more, who knows? You know, technology is really doing some cool things. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. So we have to look at this thing realistic. We, we can't become so enamored with the movers and the shakers and what they say is important. We can't embrace what is really trivial and forget what is really, really valuable. But that's not easy today. It's not going to be easy for any of us. So here's our problem. We, we are coming up upon a season. It's one of my favorite seasons. Uh, winter, believe it or not, I like winter. And, and one of the things I like about winter is that it's peephole season. How many know what I mean, peephole season? You're, you're, let me show you a picture. You'll get it now. <laughs> Own up to it. How many... How many, you get out there, man, and it's that hard frost. It's not that easy gliding frost. It's that chip away. And so you're like, man, you're running your defroster inside your car as hard as it'll go, and you make that little hole. You're driving, man. You got your eyeball right to the little hole. I'm serious. How many have done it? Own up to it. I I have, man. It's a real challenge. It makes it exciting. Now, I'm joking because it is exceedingly dangerous, okay? It really is. I have done it. Yes, I have done it. But, but it's very dangerous. Don't you do it. <laughs> uh, you can't see the big picture. You just can't. It, it is just impossible. Uh, I don't want to be offensive or anything like that, but, but I'm going to use an example here that could be considered narrow, delicate generation today, offensive. It's not meant to be. It's just reality. The truth of the matter is a blind person, a person that is physically blind, They could walk right past a bucket full of diamonds and think nothing of it. And they could just as readily be attracted to pick up a rattlesnake because they can't see the whole picture. They're blind to reality. A deaf person could be immersed in the most beautiful music that the planet offers, but but they're oblivious to it. They don't hear it. The problem, the reason that so much that God considers trivial is considered valuable by society and so much that God considers valuable is considered trivial by society is because we're living with the peephole. We cannot see the big picture. When Jesus came, that was the big thing. He revealed to people the truth about God and the truth about the universe and reality. By his miracles, he demonstrated that things that people couldn't fathom and couldn't do were possible. He talked about heaven as a a reality, a real realm, a real place. He talked about people being very alive who had died hundreds of years before. Why? Because he knew it. He had seen it. He had been there. He had access to it. It would be no different than you and I going back in a time machine. And so we go back and we visit medieval times. And we try to convince them, hey, I'm telling you, I'm from another time and another place. I I have this house that I live in. It's it's different than your castle. I have climate control. I can push a button and make it hot or cold. They can't fathom that. Not only that, I I have this thing called a microwave. You don't know what a microwave is, but let me tell you something. I can just put food in there, make it hot or cold, do whatever I want. And there are chariots, not like these chariots you guys have. There are chariots you just put your foot to the floor. They'll go 120 miles an hour. You could try to tell them about these realities that you know are real, but they could never fathom it. They would think your ideas were trivial, but they weren't. Jesus talks about 
eternity and the eternal kingdom. He talks about reward in heaven. He talks about it again and again and again. He urges people. He says, lay up for yourselves, not treasure on earth where moth and rust and thieves break into steel, but lay it up in heaven where it's going to endure. He keeps saying, great is your reward in heaven to the persecuted and so on. He says in Matthew 16, 27, when he returns with his angels, he says, and I'm, I'm going to return and reward every person according to what they deserve. There's always this emphasis on this realm, this dimension that we can't see. But Jesus reveals it. He reveals the truth about God, the truth about the universe. And he reveals it so that we can live in light of reality, the truth. Reality is more than we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. Listen to these verses, and this will kind of clarify just a bit more. The Apostle Paul writing once again to those that were in Corinth that were followers of Christ He's talking about his own condition of deterioration as human beings. We all experience this. He says, so we aren't depressed, even if our bodies are breaking down on the outside. How many can identify with that? <laughs> Some of you young are like, what are you talking about? I'm in my prime. My body will never break down. Uh, so we aren't depressed, and it can be, <laughs> even if our bodies are breaking down on the outside. The person that we are on the inside is being renewed every day. I mean, I'm still the little kid from Southeast inside, only a way better version because I'm becoming a Christ-like version. I'm eternal inside, and so are you. And I can grow. I can become more like Christ to the last breath of my life. My body might be falling apart, but myself, my spirit, my soul, it's ever alive. We don't focus. Now, here's the key, folks. If you want a test, how do I know what is trivial and what is truly valuable? How can I discern what is the test? What is the definition? Here it is. We don't focus on the things that can be, what does it say? If you can see it, not necessarily eternal. Can be. Humans are, you know, made of eternal stuff. We don't focus on the things that can be seen, but on the things that can't be seen, the things that can be seen don't what? They don't last. All, all, all the stuff, all, all the persons, places, things, you know, we, 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 we go, we deteriorate, we don't last. The things that can be seen don't last, but the things that can't be seen are what? Eternal. Here's how we determine. What is truly valuable, it's got the stuff of eternity in it. Now, I mentioned people you can see, but they have the stuff of eternity. People will endure. That's why Jesus always talked to people. He wanted them concerned about life after death. He let them know that death is not the end, not at all. And it was so critical that they included this as they figured their lives out and developed their own priorities and habits and so forth. So this gives us a formula. The things that are eternal are truly valuable. The things that are not they're trivial. Now, trivial doesn't mean they're bad. doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy them. It does mean we need to manage them and make sure we are not completely in pursuit of them and not at all intentionally pursuing the things that are truly valuable. So let's turn the corner. We want to devote ourselves to what is truly valuable. And here's one thing that God reveals about reality that makes it very helpful for us to intentionally focus on what really matters and what's really valuable. Listen to this portion of Scripture. Paul, once again, writing to followers of Christ in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, for every one of us, it doesn't leave out anyone, 
Every one of us, those that believe they will and those that don't believe they will. Okay. Every one of us will stand without pretense before Christ our judge. And we shall be, what does it say? Rewarded. Rewarded for what we did when we lived in our bodies. Whether it was good or bad. Now, for some, the talk of judgment can be troubling. It's like, oh, man, you're, you're creeping me out, man. That's, that's, you know, you're guilt-tripping me, making me uncomfortable. Well, I don't see it that way. Because here's the thing. If, if there's no judgment, then your life, my life, your faithfulness, my faithfulness, or lack thereof, it doesn't really matter. Life doesn't matter. Nothing matters if there isn't any judgment. If, if this life is all there is, and, you know, you then go unconscious forever, that there's no meaning to anything. In fact, there's a guy named um, William Breitbart, I believe his name is, if I can get that slide. Um, he's the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he was studying patients that were terminal, and he found that a lot of them were opting for assistant, um, assistant oh, I say, it's, it's uh, physician-assisted suicide. And it was very troubling to him. And so he started studying, and he assumed that it was just because of the pain that people wanted to die when they knew they were cancer, uh, terminal. But that's not what he found. If death means not existence, Breitbart's patients reasoned, then what meaning could life possibly have? And if life has no meaning, there's no point of suffering through cancer. Breitbart says, what I suddenly discovered, Breitbart explained, was the importance of, what is the word? Meaning. As a basic motivating force for human behavior, we were not taught this stuff in medical school. You see, judgment brings meaning. It means that the slightest act of faithfulness, something you did because you trusted God and you wanted to do things His way and you cared about people and you wanted to bless them and serve to them and give them things that nobody's ever going to know about, things that you yourself are going to forget about. God's never going to forget it and it's going to matter and it's not trivial it's truly valuable. It's going to be rewarded, and you're going to be rewarded. But a lot of things that the society we live in says are really big and really worthy of pursuit and envy, they're not going to last. Judgment, God's judgment is a very, very, very good thing because it also means that those that are determined to do evil their whole life and to reject the loving lordship of Jesus, that, that they will have to be accountable for that as well. So when we're factoring in what's trivial, what's truly valuable, truly valuable things are about eternity. And judgment is a wonderful, beautiful thing for those that have put their trust in Christ their Creator and who are now seeking every day of their life and every situation in their life to grow, to become more like Him, seeking to serve others, seeking to be a blessing every day in every way they can. These are good things. It shows that, that we're not living foolishly or in vain. You can focus on the things that God says are really, truly valuable. And don't worry about the things that society pushes us toward that ultimately are trivial. Now, there's an interesting portion of Scripture in Luke 16. It's where Jesus is telling this parable. It's one of the weirdest parables he ever tells. It's about this, this crooked money manager guy. And uh, the crooked money manager gets caught. 
And before he gets caught, he goes to all the people that he was lending money to, and, he, and he, he gives them a break. They owed a bunch of stuff to his master. He gives them a break. And then Jesus says, he says, see, the, the people of this world, man, they're slicker than the children of light. He was literally saying that the people that don't give a rip about God are slicker at self-preservation and investing for themselves than are God's followers. And then Jesus goes on to say these words. This is mind-boggling. This is Jesus talking, Okay. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of what? Now, he's going to say in a minute that worldly wealth is trivial in his own way. But he's saying you can take something trivial and you can make it truly valuable. Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into what? Whoa, man. Wait a minute. That sounds like you can buy your way to heaven. Sounds like you, you, go, you, you pay enough money, you're going to get into heaven. That's not what it's teaching. Of course not. Scripture is very clear. We become citizens of heaven when we return to Christ our creator in faith and trust and become his followers. Then we're forgiven all our sins. We're given everlasting life. We become children of the king and enter into his kingdom. But what is Jesus saying? What is he saying? He's saying, well, let, well, let me read the rest of it. And I'll, I'll double back, I promise. The one who is faithful in very what? Very little. He's talking about worldly wealth. He counts worldly wealth as trivial. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in what? In much. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, the very little, who will trust you with the true riches of where? Whoa. He's saying that the way we behave ourselves in this life, particularly pertaining to the way that we handle finances will be the basis of what kind of treasures we're trusted with in the age to come. And Jesus is not baiting us to make us mercenaries. He's just telling the truth. And we do this all the time. If we find that somebody's not trustworthy in very little, we're not going to trust them in much, right? You know, but if we find they're trustworthy in little, we'll trust them with a little more, a little more, a little more. There's going to be privileges in the eternal realm that are going to be given to people. And if I could just go back to that passage, just bear with me. I just want to point a couple things out. Um, when he says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so when it fails, they, they may welcome you into eternal life. What does he mean? He's saying that you and I can take money that God gives to us, entrust to us, and we can use it in a way that it will cause people to come to know Christ, to trust in Him, to become His followers, to grow, to develop, to fulfill the purposes of God in their life. This is one of the reasons, and this is not a pitch for money, it's just telling the truth. This is one of the reasons that giving is a part of worship and giving is such an important habit to learn to be generous. Our God is generous. It's really important. He's saying literally, because of the way some of us gave our finances in this life, Literally, we'll be walking down the street one day in heaven and somebody will come up to us and say, hey, 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 man, you probably don't even remember me. You, you don't, I, was, I was a little kid like this, and I'm telling you, I went to that church, and from the time I was a little kid like this until I was a young adult, you and that church and all those people there, man, you guys blessed me. You showed me what God was like. You immersed me in his love. You told me the truth about life. You steered me around all the, the pitfalls in life. And man, oh, man, if it hadn't been for somebody 
that gave their resources to create such a place and keep such a place functioning, I wouldn't be here. I mean, come on, spend some time in my house up here. I, I just want to throw a feast for you. Literally, literally, it's saying that we can use what is trivial worldly wealth to accomplish what is eternal. We know this. Churches do this. Missions do this all the time. And so here's the way that we can focus on what is truly important and then do something concrete about it. Now, each and every day of our lives, we get an opportunity to invest in what is truly important. Although it will seem trivial, it's truly important. Uh, a guy named Richard C. Howerson, he, he was kind of the, the chaplain for the Senate for a long time, back in like the 1950s and 60s, I believe. Um, he said these words. He would say them often at the end of his own church services. He would say to his people, his benediction was, wherever you go, God is sending you. Remember that. I believe that. Wherever you go, God is sending you. He wants you to be light in that place, to reveal the truth about God and the truth about life the best you can by your behavior, your conduct, and what you say when you open your mouth. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. You say, Randy, I don't like where I'm at. That's okay. God's put you there. You can grow and develop, though it may be hard and uncomfortable, and you might be a light in a dark place that you can't even imagine. It might be critical, your importance there. You might be going through an experience that God's going to use later on to touch somebody's life. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ who indwells you by the power of the Spirit wants to do something where? In and where? Through you. First in me changes me, changes my values, changes my habits, changes my conduct, changes my character. And then through me as I interact with others, believe this and go in His grace, His love, His power. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. That's a powerful, beautiful thing. That, that's worthy, man, to write down on a card and just kind of read it to yourself every day because that's the reality. When you go to your circles of influence, whether it's work or the community or your family or your friends or wherever it is, you are, if you are a follower of Christ, you are His light to the world. And every time you show something of His conduct, something of His truth, something of His character, every time you let His goodness, His kindness, His grace, His helpfulness flow through you, you're, you're building some spiritual bridges with people and you're doing stuff that will last for eternity. It is not trivial. Anytime you invest in the life of a human being for the purpose of trying to, to let them experience the love of God in some way, that is never a trivial thing. Jesus, remember, he said one time, he said, hey, if you even give a cup of glass of cold water to one of my disciples, you won't lose your reward. Jesus said that. God is very meticulous about remembering these acts of faithfulness that are done in secret often. They are not trivial. They are enormously big. But our society tells us what's really big is what we ought to be excited and motivated about. But God says, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's trivial. Get ready to land here shortly. Listen to this passage from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel says, those who have insight, and now we should have insight as to what's trivial and what's truly valuable. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars... Forever and ever. Lead many to righteousness. Each and every one of us in this room that are Christ followers, we have the ability to lead people to Christ, to righteousness. Some years ago we started something, and I haven't given enough emphasis through the years, but we started a little, little mini campaign called The Power of One. Just curious, how many remember it? The Power of One. 
And what we emphasized was this. What if, what if each and every one of us that are Christ followers, that are Christians, we said, by God's grace, I'm going to try to reach one person or one family every year in my life as long as I live and breathe. I'm going to try to reach one person or one family. I'm going to try to bring them to Christ if I can or at least try to bring them to church. We also share with you during that that the most powerful thing that you and I can do, the most powerful thing is to invest in the lives of the people that we are around in our circles of influence and then to invite them to church. They do studies on this stuff. 85% of the people, year after year after year, decade after decade, 85% of the people that become authentic Christ followers and stay faithful to God and become true lights to the world who push aside the trivial and embrace what's truly valuable, the real deal Christians, 85% of them, do you know how they become Christians? Anybody want to just give a wild guess? They are invited to church. That's it. That's it. And if the church is doing what it should be, that church helps them to feel respected and safe, and it shares the truth about God and the truth about life with them in a way that's relevant and exciting and meaningful, and it gives them time, and it gives them that that ability to make authentic decisions to either put their faith in Christ and follow Him fully, freely, forever, or not, or not. I want to challenge you. Maybe you remember, but maybe you have forgotten. It is not a trivial thing. It is a very valuable thing to invite someone to church. What if you got back on that power of one crusade and you're, you're praying, oh God, give me someone, give me one family, give me somebody I can invite this year, give me somebody I can invest in uniquely. And you pursue that every year, just, just one a year for the rest of your life. You'd have those conversations with those people welcoming you into eternal dwellings and saying, hey, man, if you hadn't invited me to church, don't know who I would have become. Don't know what, my fa- what, what would have happened to my family. Don't know who or what I would have been. But because of you, it was not trivial when you ratcheted up your nerve and you gave me that invite to church. I was never the same. Some of you, that's your story, and you know it. You know it. Be bold. Be courageous, particularly At this time of year, you know, Christmas Eve is a grand time to invite someone. It's non-threatening, and it could make an eternal difference in somebody's life. Well, let me close with a story about a guy uh, who was a great wide receiver uh, for his short career, Ricardo Lockett, for the Seattle Seahawks. He was, he uh, was in three Super Bowls. They won one in 2014. So here's this elite athlete making millions of dollars, treated like he's a god because athletes, professional athletes are in our society. They are not treated as trivial, even though they're just playing a child's game. You ever think about that? Um, At a very high level, okay? I want to be respectful. (laughs) But um, some of you probably remember they were playing Dallas, and, man, he took a hit. And it was one of those bad scenes, man, where he just laid there on the field and had to be taken off. In fact, here's his words. It's crazy what matters to you when you're in that situation. There he was crumpled up after taking that hit. Cars, jewelry, big houses, Super Bowls, it all seems so meaningless. My word, trivial. I came up from nothing, undrafted practice squad, released a bunch of times, then I made it to three Super Bowls in a row. He goes on. Now, all of a sudden, I can't move. They thought it had broken his neck. Uh, 
And the only thing that mattered to me in the entire world was being able to see my family again. To hold my kids in my arms. Then he quotes Pete Carroll, his coach. And I thought this was so beautiful, man, that that an NFL football coach says these words to his players. Carroll used to preach to us all the time. You live in a temporary fairy tale. Your fans are temporary. Your coaches are temporary. Your teammates, as much as they love you, are temporary. The big houses you live in are temporary. You can enjoy all that stuff. But it's not what will bring you what? Happiness. He's saying, that stuff's okay, but it's trivial. You can enjoy it, manage it carefully, but it's not the stuff that's going to satisfy your heart, your soul. It's not the stuff that's truly valuable. The stuff that's truly valuable will go into eternity, and always that's people and whatever we invest in the lives of others, particularly what we invest in the lives of others when we're intentionally seeking to influence and invite them toward Christ, their creator. So here's what my last words are about this. I want this to be balanced. Enjoy what's trivial. This is not a big guilt trip, not some monk message. You know, I want you to live like a monk. Enjoy what's trivial. It's okay. But you got to make sure you pursue what's eternal. And I say you got to make sure because society urges us to forget about what's eternal and what's really valuable. So we got to become intentional about it. we got to reexamine our life. And maybe that's the decision for some of us here, that if nothing else, this message, you sense that God is urging you to get alone, maybe with a sheet of paper and pen, and just sort of look at your life and what you are investing in. What is, what is getting your time? What is getting your money? What is getting your energy? What is getting your enthusiasm? And is it ultimately something that's trivial and should be enjoyed but managed carefully? Or are you well invested? Are your priorities good that you're well invested, intentionally invested? You know, you're, you're not just walking this stuff. You're, you're living, or you're not just talking this stuff. You're living it. You're, you're serving God in all kinds of venues. You can point to ways and places where you're serving and investing your life and your time and your talents and your treasure. Some of us, it could be that this message is kind of like a weird wake-up call, and yet we sense something substantive to it. Maybe we've never thought about life after death. Maybe we've never thought about an eternal realm of existence. Maybe we've never given much thought to this person of Jesus. But suddenly there's something that's kind of getting us inside. And we sense there's something to this. And, and I do want a better life. And I'm not satisfied with this world. And I'm sure as heck not satisfied with who I am. And if Christ is the key to that and his kingdom is, is real and ultimate, I, I want that. I want in on that. Well, maybe today is the day that you do what I did back at age 23. And you say, everybody's following somebody. Let them follow who they want. I'm going to follow this one called Jesus who claimed to be and demonstrated with power that he was none other than the creator of the universe. And yet he was so gentle and good and loving that he went through death on a cross to convince me that I had nothing to fear and that I had every reason to trust him. And maybe today is your day. You're saying, I don't really care much what anybody else is thinking or doing in a world where everybody's following somebody. I'm putting my trust in Jesus, and I'm going to become his follower today. So which of those two decisions might the Spirit of God be kind of, you know, egging you on today to make? Let's pray. 
Father, you know how hard it is for us in this day and age we live in not to be swept up in the current, to um, fill our lives with the trivial and have no energy, no time, no resources, no money, no anything left for that which is truly valuable and eternal. Give us wisdom. Help us be real with you and real with ourselves. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.